We're going to continue our study through Matthew uh, 7. Guys, we have one more week in the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll be uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 12 tonight. You guys ready? All right, let's read. It says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now be our verses we'll cover tonight. Jesus, uh, he's going to begin to summarize uh, his teachings concerning um, our relationships with others that he's been teaching us from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he's going to call us to treat people the way that we want to be treated. That's the golden rule, right? We've kind of heard that from at a, even at a young age. And then he presents two ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. A choice will have to be made. He will then finish with a warning to his listener of false prophets that would seek to lead them away from Jesus. Those are the three uh, topics that are connected that we will look at tonight. So let's start in verse 12, and it says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus starts off by saying, in everything. He's calling his disciples' attention to all that he has taught them about their relationships with each other in the rest of the world, in all their interactions with people. He says to treat them the way that you want them to treat you. When we read this, sometimes it helps us to get a fuller understanding if we read what he's not saying. If we determine what he's not saying. What he doesn't say is treat them so they will treat you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say treat them so that they will treat you. He doesn't promise a reciprocal response. He doesn't expect, he doesn't tell you to do one thing with the expectation that you're going to receive it back. But really, on the contrary, he's been teaching us differently, right? From the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks of persecution for doing what is right. He talks about being criticized. He talks about being insulted. He talks about having false evils said against us or about us. 
He also talks about being spitefully used. These are the effects of living as somebody who's a part of the kingdom of heaven. The world will hate you. You'll be used. But Jesus comes to this point in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, treat them the way you want to be treated. You want them to treat you. He also talks regarding our human relationships by expanding upon the Old Testament scriptures to be dealing with the heart or motive, not just our actions. Remember when he taught us about uh, anger being the equivalent to murder? Remember when he taught us that lusting after another person was equal to adultery? He was dealing with the heart. He was focusing upon the heart of his disciple and letting them know that it's not just an outward observance of laws that makes you right, but it's the inward condition of the heart. But Jesus teaches that we are to treat others the way we want to be treated. He teaches in the sermon, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. Even if his disciple was grievously insulted, they were not to retaliate. But to go the extra mile, to, to give without expecting to receive back, and not to turn anyone away. These are the ways that he was teaching his disciples how to treat others. He taught that his disciples were to love their enemies, to bless those who persecute them, to do good to those that hate them, and to pray for those who spitefully use them. He also taught his disciples, and we went through this not that long ago, not to be critical and judgmental of their fellow man. But what I think Jesus is getting at here is to put ourselves in the place of the other person when we interact with them. To think, if I were in their shoes, how would I want to be treated? If I'm going wayward, would I want somebody to tell me the truth? Would it, if I am being... Um, a really messy person, would I want somebody to show me grace or extend love to me or speak the truth in love? Jesus says to put ourselves, to be active by placing ourselves in the place of the other person. You see, there's a common teaching of the day that one should not do to others what one would not wish done to oneself. You see what's happening there? It's a negative statement. Just don't do something evil to somebody because you don't want it to happen to you. I think we kind of get our idea of karma, right? You know, I know that's related to other, you know, world philosophies and religions and such. But, you know, whenever you, you know, well, I'm not going to do that because of karma. I'm not going to do that because I don't want it to happen to me. But it was a common teaching. It occurred actually in the Jewish book of Tobit. In the, in, in the teaching of early Jewish teachers in Greek sources were also known to quote that. But you see how it taught no activity? It taught not doing something. 
But Jesus, he's presenting this same kind of concept, but he's presenting it in a positive and an active way. Jesus is saying, treat others the way you want to be treated. It's, it's an active thing. It involves movement. It involves doing. It involves thinking, having to digest and think about the other person and where they're at and how I should be treating them. It's also, I mean, if you think about the other ways that it was taught, it's easier to refrain from treating somebody wrongly. It's easier to just say, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to, I'm just going to distance myself. But to do good, it's, sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it takes more out of us to step forward and do what we would want somebody to do to us. It takes compassion. It takes really a heart that comes from the Spirit of God at work in us to go and to do what God is calling us to do, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling us to do good no matter the person because it is the way we want them to treat us. Jesus really is summarizing much of what he's been teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. And in this one verse, he even says that this statement summarizes what the law and the prophets say. He's taking the whole of the Old Testament, all the, the instructions that God had given Moses, and all that the Lord spoke to his people, the prophets. Jesus says that this statement summarizes what the law and the prophets say. Jesus said earlier also, you remember this, when he said that he, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to get rid of them. So he's, he's teaching his disciples how to live under that instruction. He's calling his disciples to do what the law and the prophets say. In their relationships, they were called, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, just earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That God, in his relation to man, does not show favoritism, but he is, he is just. He, he blesses those that are evil, and he blesses those that are good. Later in Matthew, uh, in chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says to, um, to him... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that the law was instructing in their relationship with each other and their relationship to God is fulfilled in loving God and loving the neighbor. Everything that the prophets were proclaiming uh, to Israel was correction, was calling them back to do what the law had said. Because much of what the uh, prophets were saying to Israel in, in those days of captivity and under Babylon and, and Assyria were, you guys aren't, you're not loving God first and foremost, you're serving idols, and you're neglecting your brother who's poor broken and needy 
You're not loving others like the law tells you. But you might look at this and go, Kyle, this is a hard thing to consider. I don't think I could treat somebody who is being evil or hurtful toward me the way I'd want them to treat me. If the person is nice or deserves it, it's easier, but this is hard. So the question we might have is, how is this possible? Treating them the way I'd want to be treated. And it starts with our relationship with the Heavenly Father. You see, a relationship with Him, as described by Jesus, is one where we where what we do or the things that Jesus is teaching us to do, we do for the Father. It starts from the motive of our hearts. When we do good deeds, Jesus says that the Father sees them and not to do them for the attention of man. Remember when we talked about that? It's we are doing those things to others because of our relationship with him and because of uh, him seeing our actions, not because we have the motive within ourselves. What this looks like is the good that we do to others is really done for him. It's done in his name. We do it because it pleases him. And we do it because we know he knows us and has our best interest. And he calls us to do these things. We do it also because we know he cares for those that are the recipients of those good deeds. That when we are going to treat others the way we want to be treated, we know that God cares for that person, no matter how ugly they are, no matter how wicked. Because he has actually loved us in our own sinfulness. He has shown us great mercy. We treat others the way we want to be treated because we know how we have been treated by him. First and foremost. And Jesus, he, I'm drawing all of this out of our past studies. Jesus says that the Father, he provides for our needs. Remember when Jesus said that he already knows what you have need of before you ask. Ask, seek, knock. And he, seek first the kingdom of God. He will give you those things that you have need of. He also gives when we don't deserve it. He's gracious to us. We see Jesus teaching us truth when we need to hear it. When it will convict us of of wrongdoing in our own lives. We see that he is comforting us when we're hurting, when we're broken. This is what we have received from the Father. This is what we have received through Jesus. And that's why we treat others the way we want to be treated. Because we've already been treated so, so well. We do it because we have received Jesus and trust in him for our salvation. We cannot be good enough to be granted passage into the Father's kingdom. Not one thing that we can do to earn our salvation. And Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, to do what the law required and to fulfill what the prophets said that the Messiah would do on our behalf. 
Jesus came to be the payment for our sin so that all who believe in him might be forgiven and enjoy rich relationship with the Father and have life eternal. You see, when we look at it like that, that's how we have the right perspective to be able to reach and treat others the way we've been treated, we would like to be treated. Because we've already been treated the best. We've already been, we've already received of the goodness. And we want to treat them in that same manner. Unconditional love for others is birthed out of a relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that we have to work up. This is something that that the God that the Lord does through us, that He He stirs up within our hearts towards others. But there are many who will pursue a life apart from Jesus, and some who will teach a life apart from Jesus. And Jesus goes on to describe those two situations for us tonight. We have two ways leading to two destinations, two different destinations. As Jesus moves forward towards the end of his sermon, he moves his listeners to a decision. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we have a narrow gate and a wide gate. The narrow gate is a small gate, a narrow way. And the few who find it, it leads them to life. And then we have it set on opposite, the wide gate. It's a broad way and a wide opening and many go by it, but that, that way, it leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is describing. There is a decision that is made by all people who have heard Jesus' words, encountered his claims. That is, is he, that decision comes to, is he worthy to be followed or is he not? And this is the decision that Jesus is is painting for us. Jesus gives this illustration here, presenting two ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. Two entrances, two entrances to these paths, one wide with many going through it and the other narrow or small and few finding it. Two ways, one broad and easy, but leads to destruction and one difficult and narrow, marked with persecution, but ending with reward. Two vastly different paths. You see, the Old Testament spoke of of making a decision like this before. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, it says, um, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. This was the presenting of the, of the law, the, 
This was the presentation of choosing to follow God or choosing to go the way of the rebels. In Jeremiah, so we have the law, which is in Deuteronomy, and then we have Jeremiah, one of the prophets, saying, Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There's always a decision that's going to be presented to us, to people throughout all of history, from the very beginning to the middle of history, all the way till now. And at this point, Jesus is presenting the same decision. He's presented to his listeners the way of life, the way of his kingdom. That's what we've been listening to and studying through throughout the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, his kingdom that is different from worldly kingdoms. It's a narrow path. And not many will choose to follow Jesus. One that is made up of the poor in spirit. Those who mourn the meek, those hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those that are merciful and those that are pure in heart and those that are peacemakers and those who are persecuted for doing right by God. That's what God's kingdom looks like. It's a difficult road. People of his kingdom do good deeds so that God the Father is glorified. The people of of Jesus' kingdom, of God's kingdom, work to make things right with their brother. And they deal seriously with sin, recognizing that sin begins in the heart. They're more critical of their own self before being critical to other people. They are people of their word. They do what they say. They don't make empty promises. They are loving towards their enemies, blessing and doing good to them and praying for them. They give to the needy. They pray and they fast unto the Lord and not for mere recognition of men. They seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not their own will or their own good deeds. This is what the narrow way looks like. This is the way that when we enter through Jesus, this is the way that leads to life. This does not mean that it is difficult to become a Christian. That's something we want to make sure. That what Jesus is saying here is not that it's difficult to become a Christian but that there is only one way that leads to life, and that is through Jesus. People will find it difficult that there's only one way. Now you think about this in the contrast to the broad path. The broad path doesn't require any sort of self-reflection. The broad path doesn't care much about the other person's needs. It can, but it's going to be done in a way of self-promotion. The broad path does good deeds so that they might be recognized by fellow man. They can relax on their word. They can make promises in so much as it might get them to where they want. 
They might show kindness to people that love them, but when it comes to enemies, hands off. They can do what they want. The broad path accepts anybody on it with any sort of philosophy, God. But the narrow way, it only exists through Jesus. And it's the only one that leads to life. All the other hopes and, and desires that can be found on the broad path, they ultimately end in destruction. It's an easy road to travel on, though. And so Jesus paints this picture of these two paths in very quick two verses. And then he leads us to another outside influence in verse 15 and 16. Actually, 15 through 20. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. So false teachers present another way other than Jesus. They're actually infiltrating the church or looking as though they're religious or part of the flock of God. But their intention is to draw people to the broad path. Or they are so deceived that they are deceiving others to follow them into a way that leads to destruction. But Jesus puts out that warning. After I go, essentially, beware of false prophets. Beware of those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, on the inside, they're ravenous wolves. Teaching, their, what, what they teach, what they bring, is another way than Jesus. False prophets in the Old Testament would only speak what the king and the people wanted to hear, claiming that it was God's word. Think about that. These people, for their own prestige or for being liked by the king or getting all of the resources that they would get for being one of the prophets of the king, they would tell the king what he wanted to hear and saying, well, this is God's word. You can find plenty of examples of this. In, um, in the Old Testament. Today, false teachers would seek not to glorify Christ, but themselves in order to gain money, fame, or power. They look religious, sound religious, do religious things, but truly are wolves hiding out to get to the sheep. They see people truly seeking help seeking support from the Lord, and they take advantage. And if we think about this whole shepherd imagery, the sheep are defenseless. The sheep need the shepherd. And Jesus, being the shepherd that he is, is warning them, look out for this. They, they present a way that is not Jesus, they sell you their book on self-help and ask you for a testimonial review about how they helped you. Think about that. It's about promotion of self. But Jesus says, 
don't worry. You can know them by their fruits in verse 16. They are identifiable by what they produce. And sometimes this takes a moment to step back and, and look. What does their life and ministry produce? Are they humble and faithful in the way they live? What do they teach? God's word or a positive message that is void of God's word? What does their ministry produce in people that are listening to them? Are they being drawn closer to the Lord? Or are they more self-indulged? More aware of worldly things than godly things? More influenced by psychology than by the Spirit? And Jesus uses some imagery here. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? You got grapes and figs, fruit, sweet, delicious fruit. And then you have thorns and thistles, things that cause aggravation and pierce the skin. They cause frustration and pain. You don't get sweet, beneficial things from something that will cause pain and hurt. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not natural. So every good tree bears good fruit, verse 17, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we see Jesus speaking of destruction again. But what is it in context to now? The tree that is not bearing good fruit. The destruction is for that tree that is not producing. The warning here is about false teachers and how to determine who they are. But this can also be a reminder for ourselves. What is the fruit that I'm producing? Do I bear fruit for God's glory? And remember, as we look at other people and we are taking time to understand their ways, Jesus taught us to deal with the plank in our own eyes first so that we might be able to see clearly. If, we have, if we're all messed up, we're probably going to be more prone to fall in line with a deceptive teacher, a false teacher. Judge ourselves first before being able to see what's wrong in the other person. The same goes for trees that won't bear any fruit. A tree that does not bear fruit, is, it's pretty much useless. Remember when Jesus was walking along the road and he saw the fig tree and he was expecting to see fruit and there was no fruit and he cursed it and the next time they walked by it was all withered up, dead. When we're attached to the vine as Jesus describes it says that we will receive all that we need and we'll produce fruit. A Christian who is attached to Jesus should be bearing fruit. This is, this is uh, good things that we are doing. They're good things that, that are about us, that we have love, we have 
joy, we have peace, we have patience. Those are things. Now, we don't have all of those things all at the time. Sometimes the Lord's working to produce that in us. But there should be fruit. There should be some acknowledgement that we are attached to him, that we are receiving from him. But what happens if we're not producing fruit? It's something we need to check. If we're not producing fruit, there's a reason. We're disconnected from the vine. And Jesus repeats himself, and I think that this is important. In verse 20, he says, So then you will know them by their fruits. That by observing these false prophets, they should stand out. Because their fruits will deter, will show you who they are. So let's summarize and, and recap here. Jesus has summarized his teachings concerning our relationships with others, calling us to treat people the way we want to be treated. And by doing this, we would be living according to what the law and the prophets instruct. He moves to present a choice to his hearers, a choice of two ways and two paths. One Broadway, easy with many people going, treading on that path, or one way, narrow and difficult and few going that way. The narrow way is the way that leads to life, and the way that way is through him. The broad way is the way that leads to destruction, and that way is found in anything other than Jesus. He warns us to beware of false teachers, people that present the broad way as a way that leads to fulfillment, a life lived for oneself, a life distracted from the destruction to come. These false prophets will produce fruits, ways of life that will indicate their true motives. See, as a good shepherd, Jesus is protecting the sheep, warning them of intruders, wolves dressed as sheep that only mean them harm. He's leading us as his sheep in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what we need to remember, that Jesus is the great shepherd leading us in paths of righteousness, showing us the ways in which to live, instructing us in the ways that we should go, and commissioning us in how to live this life in a way that glorifies him. It may be difficult. It may be hard. It may come with persecution. But in the end is life. And life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that you love us enough to warn us. We thank you that you love us enough to present a decision, Lord, to us. Lord, that we have a a choice. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you have loved us so greatly, Lord, that you sent your Son to die upon the cross for us. The sacrifice for our sins, That grace, Lord, may be extended to us. 
Lord, in, in forgiveness for sins. Lord, that you commission your people, Lord, as we enter into this fellowship with you. You call us to live in a way, Lord, that its reward is life. Lord, that it's not empty. It's not a, it's not a, it's not something, Lord, that we don't know what's going to happen. But Lord, it is a life that is, that has a reward. Lord, we pray for the help of your spirit to be able to treat others, Lord, the way that we would want to be treated, Lord, the way that we have been treated by you. Lord, and we ask for discernment, Lord, that as we hear different people around us speaking in your name or saying different things, Lord, that we would be able to discern, Lord, the fruit of those people. Lord, that we might stay near to you, our shepherd, where we're protected. Lord, where we are producing these fruits that glorify you. And we thank you for your word. We commit this night to you. Pray for each one that's here today, Lord, just that as we finish out this week, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to love others, Lord, the way that you have loved us. Lord, to speak of your goodness to others, your faithfulness to us. Lord, that you would be glorified, Lord, in the things that we do the remainder of this week, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.